0: Abraham, called from the Ur of Chaldees, was living right down there in Ur, was called by God and eventually he settled for a long period of time at Beersheba, which is in the south of the Holy Land as we call it. And God came to him one day and asked and told him that he must go and sacrifice his son. He was living there in Beersheba, as I've just said, in the very south. And he was told precisely where he must go. He must go to Mount Moriah. It was a three-day journey. He went with his son and and some of his uh, servants, and they went to Mount Moriah. You know the account well. I'm only reminding of you because it's so significant. And when they got to that place, his son said to him, Well, everything is here. What about the offering And Abraham said to him, the Lord himself will provide the lamb. And you know then that Abraham laid his son, and let me use the language carefully but reverently, his beloved son. Abraham had been promised this son. Abraham had waited 25 years for this son. He was a precious son. Oh, if you're a good parent, all your children are precious. But there was something extra special about this one because he'd waited so long. And I'm using that term, beloved son, for obvious reasons. He lays him on the altar and as he's about to bring the knife down, the voice of God comes and said, no, don't slay your son. I'm paraphrasing, don't slay your son. And you think what a wonderful end to the story. And there over in the thicket is a ram and they slay the ram and that's the offering. And you think that's the end of the story. It's not. It's scene one. The curtain comes down. 2,300 years later, the curtain goes back up. And on that very same place is Calvary. Don't misunderstand me I'm not saying the same square meter but that place just outside Jerusalem there they crucified him but there's another account which is very significant David towards the end of his life something in his life stirs up and he feels proud and he asked Joab his the captain of his host the captain of his army to go and number the men and Joab senses something is not right and almost remonstrates with David, but he's sent, and after nine months he comes back with the account of how many men there are in the whole of the land, north and south, who are able to bear arms. And Gad the prophet comes to him and said, The Lord God is not happy with what you've done. It's pride. And God gave him three possible judgments. They were seven years of famine, three years of fleeing from your enemy, David would know what that was like. He spent the first years of his life fleeing from his enemy. He knew what that was like. Or three days pestilence. And David said, let me fall into the hands of the living God, not into men. And so the pestilence descended and 70,000 people of the people of Israel were put to death. And the the slaying angel was then at the, the, uh, the, um, the Jebusites threshing floor. You'll see the significance in a moment. And he was about to slay Jerusalem and God said, no, stop. David then was cut to the heart. He said, these are innocent people. These have done nothing wrong. The sin is mine. And Gad said to him, well then, go and make a sacrifice on the threshing floor of Oron and the Jebusite so David goes up to the threshing floor and to Arorna the Jebusite and says to Arorna, let me buy your threshing floor, let me buy all, the, all that is necessary for the sacrifice. And Arorna said, no, no, I'll happily give it to you. He was a wealthy man and it's his king. And David said, no, no, I must purchase, it must cost me. And there he had the sacrifice. Why is it so significant? Arorna, a Jebusite, the Jebusites were the ones who lived in the area of Jerusalem it was at that area on this where this sacrifice was made so we've got Abraham's sacrifice made in this point we've got David a thousand years before Christ on this point point. and the other little detail which is so significant too, about there it was outside the gate Christ was crucified outside the gate there were sacrifices made within the temple but this one must be outside the gate. uh, Everything outside the gate was rubbish. They would take the rubbish outside the city. The Valley of Hinnom was where all the rubbish was born. Everything that was unpleasant, untoward, was outside the gate. And Christ was taken outside the gate. So I'm going to repeat, it's not on exactly that same square metre of ground. Abraham's experience, David's experience, and Christ outside the gate was there. These Old Testament narratives are interesting in themselves, but they all point forward to Jesus Christ. We read this, Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. The writer to the Hebrews picks up on that very important detail. So we've established there, they, who crucified Jesus Christ. Yes, I know it's a a subject that's been debated many times. Was it the Jews? They hated him. From the very beginning, you remember the very first time when he stood up, he went into the temple as an adult man. He, he was handed the scroll and he begins to read from Isaiah 61 about that he'd been appointed unto him to preach the gospel, the good news. And they turned and looked at him and they were indignant. From that moment they hated him and afterwards they sought to kill him. They schemed to kill him. They sent officers to arrest him. And on one occasion when those officers went back, the the ruler said, why haven't you arrested him? And they simply said, never a man spake like this man. They were amazed at the way in which the Lord Jesus Christ spoke. They tried to trick him again with the the, the taxation. Who should we pay tax to, Caesar or or to God? And again, they were amazed at the... Profundity, but the simplicity of answer. Well, pay taxes to, to Caesar and to God. Pay what is due to Caesar to Caesar and what is due to God to God. They tried to trip him up and they could not. And so they hated him the more. Rather than recognizing there was something astonishing about this man, they hated him yet the more. And finally, a traitor is found. And he's willing to, tr- to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. Again, you need to go into the Old Testament to understand the significance of that, but 30 pieces of silver is the price of a slave. It is a very small amount of money relative to what was taking place. But the Jews could not pass death sentence because they were under the Romans. So they took the situation to the Romans and they sent him to Pilate, as we've read. I don't need to go over the account. Pilate interrogated him, could find no fault, found he was a Galilean, thought, ah, that's ideal, I can send him to Herod, and Herod can take responsibility. Herod could find no fault in him, sent him back to Pilate. Pilate again examines him in front of the crowd and could find no fault in him there again. Finally, Pilate relents. It's Passover. Thousands upon thousands of Jews pour into Jerusalem from all the known world on Passover. The Jews are at fever pitch. It is the most important of their festivals, and rightly so. And so Pilate is doing his best to control these hot-headed Jews, as he considers them, and is trying to manage this situation that could easily erupt into a terrible riot. And so he relents and passes sentence, and the soldiers lead him away. Was it God himself who put Jesus Christ to death? I've got one or two scriptures that I'm just going to look up and just mention to you because it helps us to understand the answer to that question. In Acts 2.23, Peter's preaching. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. In Luke, just go back one chapter, Luke 22, verse 22. Truly the Son of Man goeth as was determined, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. We have there the absolute sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. That's not our subject this morning, but there, truly, the Son of man Goeth as was determined. God had sovereignly planned and purposed. There was a council in, in, sorry, there was a council in eternity before creation in which it was planned and purposed that Jesus Christ would suffer. And we have it there almost almost passed over, but it, it's there in verse 22 of chapter 22. "Truly the Son of Man goeth as was determined." But then the responsibility of the man, but woe well unto that man by whom it was betrayed, and then in Acts twenty, sorry Luke twenty four twenty six, going over one ver- chapter the other direction, twenty six. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things, and entered into His glory, planned and purposed from before the foundation of the world? So can we, with all the reverence our finite wicked hearts can muster, say, God crucified him? Was it not the Lord himself? You know those, to me, wonderful words in Philippians chapter 2? He made himself of no reputation, but took upon himself the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of man. He took upon himself that. He said, No man taketh it from me, but I lay down my life myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up. This commandment I received from my Father. So was it the Lord himself who permitted himself to be crucified? Well, that's true too. In essence, every one of these sections, Jews, Romans the Lord God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, have a a very important part to play. We need to be very careful in our language, and I'm trying very hard not to say anything incorrect or improper, but all of those have an aspect. Or was it us? Was it my sin that held him there? Well, I have to say yes. You see a white shirt and a dark suit. You see, one of the most wicked men you knew, if you did not know. And some of you will have to say, it was my sin that held him there. There they crucified. There are certain things in the Bible, as I go on, I find increasingly astonishing. Many of us have known the Bible all of our lives and I hope when you read it, sometimes something almost leaps off the page and you I've never noticed that before or I've never noticed the importance of that before. And you see a fresh aspect or a fresh detail and it grabs you. You're familiar with the account of the fall back in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve fall. But there's an incredible verse in that chapter. It's incredible to me because on the very day that man falls, and we are living with the outworkings of that and will do until Christ comes again, on that very day, God shows his intervention that will come. The seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. I don't want to unpack all of that verse this morning. It's an incredible verse, the seed of the woman. Jesus Christ was born of a woman but not of a man. You can see in in those few verses there is so much truth compressed. But there we see God promising from that moment, the day, if we may use that language, when, when man fell, there will come a time when it will be put right and the seed of the woman will crush the head of Satan. And Christ's death has done that. It has overwhelmed the power of Satan in a way that seems incomprehensible to anyone else. It appears to everyone else he died in weakness. But he said, no man taketh my life from me. I lay down my life. He did it in supreme power. And so you see the outworking of Genesis 3.15. Read Psalm 22 again. David's psalm, one thousand years before Christ died, some of these prophecies again are almost incomprehensible because of their precision to written so many i mean what are we twenty twenty three if some were to were to, were to write something that would not come f- forward until thirty twenty three you'd say that can't possibly you can't do that that's just not possible. but we have the scriptural records. And you read Psalm 22, it's David writing of his own experience, and it is one of the most accurate descriptions of crucifixion ever written, before crucifixion had ever been invented. And there we have little accounts of how his clothing will be um, divided and and, and split, and we have a, 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 a description of his suffering. Go on to Isaiah 53, some six or seven hundred years before Jesus Christ died. And again, you have Isaiah's prophecy. They're such profound words, you, you need to read, go home and just read it quietly and solemnly, Some uh, Isaiah 53 again. And we read in there, I, I mentioned, did God put Jesus Christ to death? And we read in Isaiah 53, it pleased the Father to bruise him. Do you see what I mean when you you read these scriptures and you think, can that be true? Don't misunderstand me. It is absolutely true. But it's so almost beyond our ability to comprehend. It's almost incomprehensible. God was pleased to bruise his son. I'm a granddad. One of my little grandsons isn't very well at the moment. Don't, Don't be anxious but the thought of doing anything to that little grand he's not my direct son he's my grandson is incomprehensible to me and yet god was pleased to bruise paul writing in in corinthians 250 chapter second 2 corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 he who knew no sin was made sin Can you really understand that? Well, 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 I can give you the theological answer for it. But can you really comprehend that? Christ being made sin? He has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. I'm going back to Isaiah 53 now, trying to match it or or bring it alongside 2 Corinthians 5.21. These things. Have you ever stood on Calvary's mount in your mind on that day when darkness fell at midday? when the graves were opened, when there were earthquakes, when the veil of the temple was rent in twain. We have no record either in the Bible or secular that I know of about the veil of the temple renting in twain and the response, to me, it must have been astonishing to the rulers of the Jews. That curtain is a huge curtain. It's meant to be as thick as a man's hand, three or four inches thick. It's 30 cubits high, I think, which is about 45 feet high. It is an enormous curtain. And I understand it was renewed every year so that it was never, um, never could have been uh, deter- deteriorating any way. And there were pre- would presumably have been people in the temple on the day when Jesus Christ died. And it's rent from top to bottom. And we have no record of what, the, what must have been the astonishment of those who were there. You'd think it would have struck fear into them. And when they realized that it was the same time as this man from Nazareth, that they have just crucified, wouldn't they put two and two together and make four or six or eight or sixteen? We don't know. But when I look at these accounts again, I'm astonished. And I hope you are. Have you in your mind stood back from that scene? And you've seen this lowly, I mean that because of the depth of what he's suffered, man staggering up the Via de la Rosa, the way of sorrows. He has suffered so much under the scourging he can't carry his cross. Let me remind you that many men died under the scourging so Painful and cruel, was it, that they could not, suffi- could not um, su- su- survive it? Jesus Christ is a fit 33-year-old man, but he can't carry his cross, and they compelled Simon the Cyrenian to, com- to carry it. Have you ever stood in your mind and watched that scene and then thought how tender he is? He pauses and speaks to the women and says, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. And they were come there to weep for him. The grace and mercy of him to me are beyond my ability to convey to you. Have you not in your mind's eyes seen that? Escorted up that road, up that pathway to where the cross will be by the soldiers who've just spat in him. They've just rammed that crown of thorns on his head and and blood would have run down his head and then would have congealed. He collapses under that weight. Have you not thought of those words when they crucify him? I'm not sure and the precise minute-by-minute chronology. It may be as they were nailing him to the cross. My understanding is the cross was laid down, the victim was nailed, then the cross was elevated and dropped into a slot. That dropping into the slot must have brought pain that you cannot comprehend, let alone the nails going in. have you not pondered those words, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do? The cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? Not any other human being who has ever lived has experienced that dereliction. We all live on what is called common grace. Whether you're an atheist or an ardent believer. But Christ, for those three three hours, suffered total dereliction. Have you not thought of those who were at the scene there, Peter? I wonder what Peter felt. He'd come to Jesus Christ and said, I will never deny you. And between that time, a matter of hours, and now, he's denied him three times. The count, if you read, go back in Luke's Gospel, it's only, the detail is only in Luke's Gospel. When he <coughs> denies Jesus Christ, they're in the same room together or the same area together and Christ looks across and catches his eye. We were talking to a friend of mine yesterday about behaving and young children behaving in the service and I was just reminded as a lad growing up, being a boy with a wriggly bottom, And mum would just look along the pew. That was enough. A look. Christ looks at Peter. No wonder he went out and wept bitterly. But he's there at this scene, looking at Jesus Christ and thinking, I've just denied him. There's John there too. The one who Jesus loved and Jesus so tenderly brings John and, and, Je- and the mother, human mother of Jesus together, and mother thy son, son thy mother. There's the rulers there, casting indignation and, and mocking him. If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. Come down from the cross. It's, it's bitter sarcasm. Have you stood there? And witness that in your mind's eye. The women are there too. Mary's there. I've just mentioned Mary because of John and, and, and the relationship that the Lord established so that Mary would be looked after and John would be looked after. But you remember when, <clears throat> excuse me, when Mary took in Jesus Christ as that very young eight-year-old into the temple and there's Simon there. A sword shall pierce your heart also. Luke 2.19 And Mary pondered all these things in her heart. Mary's standing there. And maybe now Mary really understands what that old man meant as she pondered those things in her heart. We read in Lamentations, Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by, Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow which is done unto me, wherewith the Lord has afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. I ask you this morning, is it nothing to you? Can I remind you of accounts that I trust you know full well and they mean nothing to you? And then as Jesus Christ comes to the very end of his life, I've reminded you, and I say it reverently, he was a fit 33-year-old man. We know he's fit because of the miles he travelled. He dies within six hours. That is so unusual. Crucifixion was devised to make the death as slow as it possibly could with maximum pain. It was not unusual for a young man to, to live two or three days on the cross. And he cries, it is finished. Wonderful words. Why are they wonderful? Because there is nothing that you can do for your salvation. There is nothing that you must add to it. There is nothing that you can take away. He has done all things well. And he declared as he gives up his last. And he cries out with a loud voice. Again, that's remarkable because they died of asphyxiation and crucifixion. But he gave his life. It wasn't taken from him. And so he can cry out with his last breath loudly because he's not dying at that moment directly from asphyxiation. It is finished. What held him there when taunted? Why didn't he come down from the cross? He would have astonished everyone who was there. He was able to have come down from that cross, healed himself completely, and walked away as if nothing had happened. And it is possible that that may have had an effect. But no, the Son of Man must suffer. He must bleed. He must die to take away your and my sin. Standing there, I behold the Holy One of Israel. I behold this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. In John chapter 12 we read except a corn of wheat fall to the ground and die it abideth alone but if it die It bringeth forth much fruit, 2,000 years on, there's some fruit in this room. There's some fruit in many rooms today. In our land, sadly, not as many as we'd like, but in many lands there's much fruit. It's still going on. I know that without the shedding of blood, I know that it was a substitutionary death. I know it was to satisfy God's wrath. But have I understood? Have I really understood? It was my sin that held him here. Some have concerns about more recently written hymns and I share many of those, but if the words are biblical then I can ignore that. I just want to read one verse of a hymn some of you will know well. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Died he for me? I scarce can take it in. Frances Cecil Alexandra was the wife of a Church of England minister in Ireland and she worked in the Sunday school and she tried to write, no, let me rephrase that, she wrote simple yet profound hymns for the children to understand. And one line that she writes in is there was no other good enough to take away the price of sin. Such simple language, such depth to it. Did you, when we were there at Calvary, after we'd heard Jesus Christ give up the ghost and the soldiers had pierced his side to make sure that he was dead, did you hear the words of the centurion? Truly, this was a righteous man. I dare to hope that that was the first conversion after his death. The last one before his death was the malefactor. I dare to hope that that centurion was converted at that moment. <clears throat> him. Last word, him. Him. The angel comes to both Mary and to Joseph and says, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall take away the sins of his people. I haven't quoted that quite correctly, but that's, that's the essence of it. He's 12 years old. They take him up to Jerusalem and when they leave at the end of the day you know the account well they travel home and at the end of the day they're looking for him amongst the crowd and they can't find him and as parents you know how, how desperate they would have felt so they they go back to Jerusalem and they spend three days looking for him I can't begin to understand the the anguish of of Mary and Joseph looking for their young son and they know something of who this is they know it's If I may use the phrase, this isn't an ordinary son, this is a very special son. And so the responsibility and the anguish of them must have been tremendous. And eventually they find him and he, in a sense, admonishes them. Wished ye not that I must be about my father's business? Him. They had that inkling then at 12 years old. They may well have had other inklings as he was growing up. We're not told that on the Mount of transfiguration, before his death, those words that I've already reminded you of with respect to Abraham's son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. There is no other man, there is no other name, there is no other person that, that can be said of by God to only to Jesus Christ, my beloved son. And he goes on and says, hear ye him. Will you listen to what he says? Again, the Psalms. The Psalms are so rich in in many ways. At the end of Psalm 24, the Psalm of David again, a thousand years before Christ came. We read this. Lift up the heads, O ye gates, be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. And the cry goes out in the way that David writes this. Who is the King of glory? You can almost hear the question, can't you? The Lord... Strong and mighty, the Lord mighty and battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. And the question is asked again, Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Abraham was willing to offer his beloved son. God the Father did offer his beloved son. God does not need to save anyone. The Trinity is totally self sufficient and contained. It is of God's grace alone. I don't need to apply any of this to you. If you believe any of what I've told you, by grace you are saved. If you do not believe what I've told you, I just simply have to warn you, you are on that broad road that leads. To hell. Amen. Well, let's sing together hymn number 203. When I survey the wondrous cross On which the Prince of Glory died My riches gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Hymn number 203.